Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Eric, it's a new month which provides the opportunity for new starts. It's a chance to unburden oneself of dogmatic opinions of which one wishes to be rid. So, as your chance, Eric, we're offering an amnesty for previously insufficient formed opinions. Is there anything you'd like to get off your chest while we... Yeah, as a matter of fact, there is something. Uh, I need to redo my take on the Dubois-Usyk low blow. Uh, now, I meant what I said last week at the time that I said it, but by the time it posted, some 20-ish hours later, I already regretted it getting put out into the world because I'd had a change of heart, a change of perspective. Uh, you'll recall I said I was on the fence and could see the case for it being a low blow, could also see the case for it being legal and, and feeling the ref should have started counting over Usyk. But I think at time of recording, I'd been overly influenced by seeing the slew of tweets showing the punch landing on the belt line. It was only later that it really clicked in my head fully that, yeah, okay, it was on the belt line, but clearly it was below the navel or the hip line, whichever one you choose to consider to be the line of demarcation. As I said last week, the punch appeared to lift the cup up and rattle the cage, so to speak. Uh, so it had the effect of a low blow, and I had decided after the recording, it was in fact a low blow, and... I thought it important to clarify my position, uh, especially ahead of this week's interview that uh, you, Karen, will be telling the listeners about shortly. So uh, there you go. M my positions are often fluid. I'm, I'm not going to be the, I'm not the type to spend 10 years insisting Tom Brady is about to go over the cliff, for example. Uh, I am I am capable of changing takes. Uh, last week I was lying. This week I'm telling the truth if you want to look at it that way. Um, but there it is. I feel much better. Uh, Kieran. Any opinions you'd like to change while we have this opportunity? Nope. All my opinions are perfect. I stand <laughs> by. Um, well, except one. Um, hmm. The uh, the belief that Liam Smith would beat Chris Eubank Jr. again. Hmm. I'd like that. <laughs> um, we will talk about that fight later. It's the one fight that we have to recap in. Another quiet week as uh, the sport enters the dog days of summer. But we do have some news. We've got another reader submitted, uh, a listener submitted, I should say, episode. <laughs> the fight can spot the natural print journalist. <laughs> listener submitted episode of the fight game. I'll be revealing my top five pros who won an Olympic gold in 88 or later. Um, but let's begin with uh, the interview that you mentioned. And uh, our guest this week is a podcast returnee, and he's one of the most popular and astute people in boxing. He is cut man and chief second to many boxes, including Vasily Lomachenko and Alexander Usyk. And he is the founder and owner of Rival Boxing Gear, which, if my math is correct, is this year celebrating its 20th anniversary. Russ Amber, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. Your math is correct, Kieran, indeed. 20 <laughs> years. I can't believe it. I was I look back on it. And I was I was 42 years old when I started that 62 seemed so far away. And boy, it's just flown by. It's, just, it's crazy. Yeah. yeah, the way that time works is, is not uh, is not friendly for any of us. We don't want to dwell too uh, much on uh, on the passage of it, I suppose. But but 20 years <laughs> is a great anniversary to celebrate uh, just the same. Time is like is like climbing a mountain, you know, like 
it's so slow and arduous on the way up. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then when you get to the top, the descent yeah. is incredibly fast. <laughs> all right, let's uh, well, let's shift from uh, all of us aging to uh, to some boxing talk and uh, and start with the most topical question. Uh, you were in the corner of Alexander Usyk against Daniel Dubois a week ago. Uh, Usyk, of course, won via ninth round stoppage, but a lot of the noise afterward was about that fifth round when Usyk went down from what referee Luis Pabon immediately called a low blow. A lot of British fans, uh, as well as Dubois himself, claimed that it was not a low blow and that Dubois was robbed of the belts. Kieran and I talked about it on our most recent podcast, but uh, the stage is yours, Russ, to tell us about that fifth round and about the punch from your perspective. I'm not sure if I agree with the part that Dubois claimed it wasn't a low blow, because at the time it happened, he acted exactly as if he knew it was a low blow. It was only afterwards when the narrative started that there was a low blow that he jumped on board. But when when, when it happened, and, you know, I'm in this game 44 years, guys, and I, I understand body language of fighters. I know what they're going to do. I can anticipate what they're going to do. And when I saw him drop that front knee and throw the punch the way he threw it, you know, to me, it was an intentional low blow. And mm. uh, I think that's why he did actually hit him in the testicles. I think he wanted to to, to to kind of just slow him down a little bit and landed the punch where he did land it. And uh, that's why I was yelling and screaming from the corner at Luis Pallone, you know, with my two fingers up saying that's a two-point deduction because for an intentional foul, it's a two-point deduction. And, uh, you know, it's... Uh, I, I think he walked to the corner, Dubois did, and the call was made. No one fully well he had hit low. He didn't protest the call. He didn't say, no, no, that was a body shot. Or, you know, he didn't object to the mm. referee's call. He, he, he said he missed it and went to the corner and, and took the, you know, took the rest time that, uh, that Usyk took. But uh, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that it was a low blow. And to tell you the truth, I spent this last week you know, with my brain short-circuiting, wondering how, after you see this, can anybody say it was not? And, and clearly there is a, a, a misconception or misinformation that goes around to what is a low blow. And people seem to only think, that, you know, the testicles is a low blow. Everything else is, is fair play. And it's not. And anything below the level, and certainly if it lands on the groin guard, is is a foul. And, like, how do you look at that? And, and oh, it was legit. He got counted out. Like, there there's insanity or some serious drug use going on. I mean, I don't understand that. Are my eyes? I don't get it. One sort of subtopic that a lot of people have focused on is whether the referee at some point pointed out where he felt the line was. Uh, so he didn't do it during the pre-fight instructions in the ring. Was that, did that conversation take place in the locker room? Uh, a lot of people have wondered about that. Eric, that, that, that's an, again, another ridiculous thing because you don't have to do that unless there's a problem. But it seems that in recent years, the, 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 the fighters are wearing high cups, high shorts, that now it's gotten to the point where referees have to and say, okay, here is good. 
It's so many fighters have been wearing high trunks. I don't know if I can show you on video or if, I, if you can still see me. The shorts were okay. If anybody, it should, should have been Dubois. And I've got a picture of that as well. If anybody was wearing their trunks high or their cup high, it was Dubois. But you don't have to say, hey, by the way, don't hit the floor. Don't hit him in the kneecap. You know, we know that for boxing. You, know, you don't have to, to say that. The navel is the belt line. And that's it. Even if he did, where the blow landed was not even anywhere near close to where he would have indicated the line to be. So, you know, this stop shot image that they have where, you know, the Brits seem to have been showing this where, you know, it's right on the belt. You know, they missed the whole six inches where it traveled up from the groin area and from the bladder area up to the belt. They missed all that and they freeze framed it on the, oh, no, it landed on the belt. Well, no, it might have finished on the belt, but it certainly didn't land. I don't get it, man. I don't get it. I, I don't get in this day and age of how you can look at this. You know, we talk about going to instant replay in sports, you know, mm-hmm. and you see this and then you deny with your own eyes what you see. I'm, I'm, I'm baffled. Kieran, it's got me going crazy. My brain is short circuiting. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned body language there. Yeah. And Eric and I talked about this, the way that Alexander dropped that wasn't the way that a fighter drops from a good body shot. That was a sharp drop from someone who got hit low. Uh, that's what I don't get. And if you look at the rear view as well, you see you see where the whole shorts shake. Yeah. Like it's the only part of the body that moves. It's the shorts that shake. And I just don't get it, man. I don't get people. I don't get the cheating that's going on in this sport, whether it's stacking of hand wraps, drug use, low blows. And, and you know, they're, they're, people are giving instances saying, well, look at what Andre Ward won against the Kovalev with low blows. Okay, well, the rule isn't wrong. The referee screwed up. <laughs> the rule is still right, but they didn't enforce it. You know, he hit him in the groin numerous times to get that win. And the ref did nothing about it. It's not the rule that's wrong. It's the people enforcing it. So mm. I just don't, I don't know what's going on anymore. Man. That's all to do with the whole going down the other side of the mountain too, as well, actually. We just don't know what's going on in the world. That's, <laughs> right. that's a general thing, but yeah. We're, we're shaking our fists at clouds, uh, but the, yeah. we, we try to shake our fists uh, above the belt line when we shake them at clouds. Yep, exactly. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's another thing that should be revisited um, in that, you know, one of the rules that we have in boxing is that if a referee determines a foul to be unintentional, there's no penalty. Now, I understand when that came to being that, you know, when there's an unintentional clash, which both guys come forward, no one's really initiating a headbutt and it is an unintentional foul. OK, you know, I can probably live with that. But as in the game of ice hockey, you're in control of your stick at all times. You're responsible for your stick in boxing. You're responsible for your fists. So if you hit a man in the back of the head or a kidney shot or a low blow, that's your responsibility as to where your hands go. The fact that Usyk or any other fighter is writhing in pain on the floor while the, 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 while the person who committed the foul stands there with no consequences for his actions, intentional or otherwise, you know, is, is, is some, seems something wrong with that, you know? Um. Our Showtime colleague, Al Bernstein, posted a tweet in which she asked rhetorically, so the low blow controversy aside, not controversial to me, it was low. I'm amazed people are suggesting Usyk's performance was subpar. How? 
He won virtually every round and stopped his opponent. What more was he supposed to do? I happen to agree with all of that. Um, I struggled to give any round to Dubois, even the fifth. Uh, and I actually thought Usyk looked excellent. Um, I'm curious about how you and the rest of the team felt about his overall performance. Um, I think for being off a year, he looked looked great. Uh, I think he executed a lot of the stuff that we did. We worked on in camp because I was in camp with them for two weeks in in Poland in a beautiful mountaintop resort, you know, real old school type training camp on the top of the mountain. Um, you know, it was a great camp. And the what we were doing in the gym, he successfully did in the fight. And he was fighting a typical Alexander Usyk type fight in which mm. he comes out of the gate and he sets a pace that you better be ready to be able to follow because he will just keep coming and coming and coming. And I think the probably could it from Dubois that he, he was looking for a way to slow that pace down. And that was the way to do it because Kieran, you know, Usyk is like secretariat. Once he gets going, boy, there's no stopping him. You know, like he just, he gets going and going and all of a sudden he's leaving the rest of the field behind. So I thought he looked good, but, you're right. When I saw all these comments, like what to what Al is, is referring to, I'm thinking to myself, has there been two fighters in recent memory with such outstanding pedigrees like Loma and Usyk who have been subject to so much North American hate before? And I couldn't think of any. So I'll throw that out there and see if anybody can come up with it with an answer to that. <laughs> Uh, well, we, we will have some questions for you about Loma as well, but just a couple more on the Usyk topic before we before we get to Loma. Um, first of all, the, the bout with Dubois was as close to a homecoming bout as Usyk can have right now. Uh, what was the atmosphere like in Poland and, and what did it mean for Oleksandr to be able to defend his titles there? Yeah, it, you know, leading up to the fight was really great. The weather was super hot. The whole week we were there, I mean, the day of the weigh-in, they did it in an open where with nary any shelter anywhere. And I mean, it was hot, boy. it was incredible. And the people, there was so much support. I was told that there are 5 million Ukrainians that have crossed the border into Poland. So there was a lot of national pride in Usyk, and he's a he's a real hero of the people, especially for the time he's done on the front lines and whatnot. You know, he's a very visible guy. He's an outspoken guy. He's very he's a patriot. He loves his country. Um, so there was a lot, lot of support for him uh, on the night of the fight. And I, I, I hate to I shouldn't say I hate to say this, but I try my hardest without even trying. It just happens that I caught up in the. Uh, in, 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 in the grandiose uh, event that is happening. You know, I carry my bucket. I got my cut stuff. I'm going to the ring. I'm focused on the job I have to do at hand. I know everybody around me is brewing with emotion, boiling over with emotion, and I'm trying to find a space in the corner to keep all the fans away so I can work and people who want to be so close to the ring and are cheering and screaming. And, you know, I, I did the same thing happened in, in Tottenham Hotspur during the first fight against Anthony Joshua. And it's only after that I reflect on what a, a great night we had, but primarily focused on the task at hand, and I don't get caught up in that. But uh, it was sad that it had to rain that night, though. Mm. That was mm -hmm. a little bit of a bummer. You know, that was a mm. that took a little bit of the shine off what was a great event. And uh, think about this. You know, every other time Usyk has ever fought, you know, in any big fights, it's always he's always been... The, the visiting fighter, you know, whether it was in Russia against 
Gassiev, whether it was in Latvia against Bredis, whether it was in Germany against Marco Huck, whether it was in the U.S. against Ma Michael Hunter. This was the first time in his whole career, especially in a, in a big, important fight in a world championship contest where he was the home guy as close to home as possible. Mm -hmm. So what? So what's next for him? Uh, any truth, as far as you know, to the rumors of a, of a Fury fight in January, February time frame? And then, of course, he has mandatories like Philip Hergovich. Will he will he take that if necessary? What what do you know about what might be next for him? Eric, I don't know. Like, I, we're all so <laughs> disgusted with, you know, I mean, you guys know the answer already. We're everyone, all, each and every one of us is just disgusted with the, you know, fight with Fury is not being made. Uh, Fury is, is one of the few faces of boxing, if you will. He's the heavyweight champion of the world, you know, WBC version. He snaps his fingers. This fight gets done. It's as simple as that. Snaps his fingers. This fight gets done. And it's not being done. And not only is it not being done, he's not even choosing to fight at the same time that Usyk is fighting. He's, you know, he's keeping a distance between when Usyk fights and when he fights so that they could never be on the same schedule where they could say, OK, we're both fighting this month so that in five months from now, six months from now, we're going to meet together because we both would have had our last fight at the same time they're not doing that they're waiting till the end of october which means um fury fights end of october now he's not gonna he's not gonna go to training camp in december so he's not gonna get back in the gym right away so there's not they're not they're not and and Usyk can't just sit around waiting for his next fight and there's going to be mandatory that are going to have to be met so you know all this lays in the hands of uh, of tyson fury and uh you know i just he's made no indication that he wants this fight and that's sad and that's another thing that's just you know, got me pulling my hairs out is that, you know, how are you as a man that's six foot eight, almost 300 pounds, a WBC heavyweight champion of the world, how are you not wanting to fight Alexander Usyk? How? Well, would you at least concede that you understand what's attractive to him about an Nganu fight uh, in the meantime? That It's not what we as boxing fans want, but putting yourself in Tyson Fury's shoes, do you do you get him going that direction with the hope that he then comes back to Usyk afterward? You know, I guess, Eric, by saying that, then I have to tell you that I'm okay with misfit boxing and YouTube boxing and Jake Paul boxing and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's hard for, to grudge a man, you know, to making the money that they're making. But I guess somehow they're generating revenue doing this, and it seems to be the way to go. And sadly, it's not the way that, you know, I was brought up in the sport or what we know about the sport or what we lived through through the glory years of the sport and what has been the history of the sport. So, you know, yes, of course, he's going to fight a guy who's never had a professional fight, and he's going to make a gazillion dollars doing so. I, I can't say no, I don't understand. Of course I understand. I'm just sad that this is where boxing has 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 come and that it's we we've, we've kind of relegated ourselves to uh, to being the uh, um, a, a sideshow, you know, in the world of sports, a freak show, you know, where anything goes, you know, it's not what we like or not what we know. Right. Let's move to the other future Hall of Fame Ukrainian you work with. Um Last time we saw uh, Vasily Lomachenko, he dropped a close and controversial decision to Devin Haney in a bout that really, I think, was a credit to both men. Um, Eric and I both felt that none of the scores were egregious, that it was close, but that nonetheless, we both felt that Loma was the one who should have had the, the decision. Um, 
how frustrated was he by that decision? And do you know what he's planning next? Extremely. And, you know, you guys said something that I think we forget as well. You know, to me, there was a lot more controversy in Loma's fight than this low blow in Usyk's mm. fight. You know, this is a manufactured controversy, a narrative that someone, you know, threw enough crap on the wall and starting to stick. You know what I mean? It's it's stupid. Mm. But there was definitely more controversy in that decision. But you touched on something which is true. A definite credit to both fighters on how good and highly skilled contest it was. And a, a robbery, a controversial decision, doesn't have to be in a one-sided fight. Right. You can have a close fight, but you have a winner. You have a clear winner. And I think that, you know, there was a clear winner on that night, and it was Vasily Lomachenko. And when you go back and look at it and you do the math, and you count and you dis and you 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 dissect every way in which a, a boxing contest can be scored. You can't find seven rounds for Devin Haney, mm -hmm. whether it's on how many touches, who dictated the pace of the fight, who threw more, who worked. And even if if you go back and watch it, ESPN gives last round to Lomachenko, and everybody says, "Hey, you lost round." But he didn't really lose the last round. He just didn't win it as big as he did the 11th. <laughs> That's mm. the difference. You know, but the, oh, he didn't win it that big, so he must have lost the round. So I, it's it's too bad because he's absolutely gutted by the, the decision, um, hurt by it. He doesn't box for, I don't want to say he doesn't box for money. Of course he does, but he doesn't box and fight just for the sake of fighting. Uh, you know, he fights for titles. He wants to fight for championships. It was his dream to become undisputed champion of the world. And I think that's been taken from him now. And likely is there isn't enough time left in his schedule where he's going to be able to get four belts again and become undisputed champion. And that's going to stick in his craw for the rest of his life. And uh, it, you're gonna, he's going to look back on Las Vegas as being, you know, the three judges that robbed him of that lifelong uh, dream and an achievement that he should have been celebrating that night in Vegas. Yeah, I know. I remember we all thought that when we heard that 116-112 card, certainly what I thought was, oh, well, that's clearly Vasily's got the got the decision there. And, and, right. and I think that was the one that really surprised us. Exactly. You hear 116-112, you think, oh, it's got to be us. And he didn't say split yeah. decision, so you figured if we got the first one, all right, we got it. Like, <laughs> You went the other way with 116-112? Are you insane? Like, if, I, I think that if boxing, if boxing is to, but then again, I don't think it cares. I actually don't think it gives a crap about it. But, you know, there has to be evolution in how we fights. And sitting three men who really are just boxing fans, there's no special skill that they have in watching a fight. They're far less skilled than trainers are in determining who wins a fight because a trainer understands the science of boxing, understands the subtleties, understands when a guy is doing something, understands body language. They don't have a real particular skill. They're just guys who love boxing. They sit in the worst seat in the – they got the ropes <laughs> in front of them. They're constantly moving, trying to see what's going on. You know, determine these people's futures. There has to be a way we fix this and make it better and and do it in a way that it makes it so hard for corruption to prevail or incompetence to prevail mm -hmm. one or the other 
but I don't think boxing wants to do that and it's never going to stray from its existing ways of this is the way we do it. This is the way we've always done it. You're not the first one to get robbed and you won't be the last. And everybody says, okay, that's fine. Good. Yep. All right. I like that. Let's not fix it. Here we go. But we're worried. We're worried though about passing rules that says now ABC, the ABC has passed rules saying that if there's a knockdown, it's an automatic 10, eight round. That's insane. Yeah. Do you yeah. understand the insanity of that? And you can't score an even round. Why not? How can you sit there and say a round cannot be even? Even fighters will tell you it's even. So, you know, we focus on some stupidity in this sport and we don't fix some of the real problems. That's my opinion. Yeah. I think Eric and I both, we talked about this on the podcast, and I think we both feel there should be a lot more latitude in scoring. There should be a lot less rigor about it being a 10-9 round, except in certain, like not all 10-9 rounds are the same, right? Should be a lot more latitude nope. to score around 10-8, or, right, or to, like you said, to score it even. This, this, the, the rigidity around the 10-9 system is problematic. Yeah, because basically you might as well just score it on a round system. Right. You know, right. where the way we're doing it now, they say, oh, it's a 10-point must. Well, it's not really. You're really <laughs> still scoring it on rounds. Right. And then you're giving an extra point for a knockdown. So back in the old days, you know, when New York used to be on a, and, and Montreal the same way, used to be on a, on a, on a round system and you'd get an extra point for, uh, for a knockdown. So, you know, Rocky Marciano and Roland Starza, you know, they fight was even on rounds. And I think Marciano had a knockdown or something. And that's how he ended up with the decision, you know, so because he got the plus one. So, I mean, basically, we're not doing anything much different now on a mm. 10 point must system. Every round, every round, unless there's mass murder, is 10 9. <laughs> <laughs> it's a round. You want a round. That's it. <laughs> Off of the 10 point must system. You're gonna give the you're gonna give them ideas for uh, how what the mandatory point scoring is for a mass murder round. We're gonna say like ten seven re- required when it's mass murder or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right, all right. We've 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 mostly asked a lot of questions so far, Russ, that are getting your blood pressure up. Let's maybe maybe this one will bring it down a, l- a little bit. Uh, this uh, this January sees a rescheduled light heavyweight bout in Quebec City between Arthur Betterbiev and Callum Smith. You happen to regularly work in both of their corners, and and as a result, you've opted out of cornering either man for this fight. I'm I'm curious, you know, how easy was that decision to sit one this one out? How difficult is it for you to watch two of your boxers squaring off? And and will you be ringside in Quebec for this? And you think that's going to bring blood pressure down? That's that kind of... <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. Jeez. Uh, Listen, it's uh, it's one of the hardest things I've had to do in my professional career, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, I know we've been in, I've been in the sport a long time and we've, you know, worked, you know, sometimes you work against your friends and you where you go to amateur tournaments and you have to fight a guy that you just sparred with, you know, a couple of months earlier and he's been to your gym. And I know this happens and this is the sport of professional boxing and uh, it happens. It's uh, sadly, it's the first time it's had to happen for me. It's the first mm. time I've ever had to bow out from a corner, but I couldn't live with myself working one corner over the other. Mm-hmm. And I have an argument that I could easily make on both sides as to why I'm more justified to work in one over the other. And when I knew that I had equal arguments on both sides, that's when I decided I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to jeopardize my relationship and my friendship uh, with either party, with either group of people behind each of the fighters. 
and my friendship directly with the fighters and the respect I have for them. I know that I, the, the, the fighter I would have chose to work with, I know that I couldn't have given him my best and tell him, go out there and knock the other guy out, do this, do that. I know I couldn't do that because I'd be doing it to my friend. Hmm. So I figured the best thing to do was just to, to bow out of it. And I still think it's a very, very dangerous fight for both guys. Uh, you know, two uh, probably the best light heavyweights in the world right now. And, you know, I have to take a, a back seat. I will I, I will be ringside. I think okay. if, the, if the card stays as it was for... August, there are some fights on the undercard I will be working, but uh, I might not be ringside. I might be working television, so we'll see. Uh, they might ask mm. me to do some TV because of my connection to both guys. Um, I want to get your take on a couple of big fights, one of which has taken place and one of which is about a month away. First of all, Crawford Spence. Were you surprised at how one-sided that turned out to be? Um, and I'm hearing now, as we record this, that Errol Spence has activated his rematch clause is that something you would have advised them to do, or would you have advised them to maybe go a different route? All right. Well, which question? Let's do the first one. Were you surprised? Uh, yes. And and anybody who tells you they weren't outside of the Crawford camp would have to be lying because, you know, it was a, a very, uh, you could have said, oh, yeah, I like Spence. Uh, I, I like Crawford, you know, but I don't think anybody expected it to be so one-sided. And I think when you make a fight like that and history shows, when was the last time we had a super fight that we waited for? We, everyone wanted this fight. I mean, it was probably even two years late coming, the, that fight. You know, when was the last time a super fight was that one-sided? I can't think of one. I don't know. You want to, Duran and Hearns maybe, but uh, I can't remember a super fight being that one-sided. Um, so, yes, I was surprised. I was not surprised at the winner. Uh, I did pick Crawford, uh, to win. Um, I expected Spence to get, get out to a little, maybe early lead. And then Crawford just starts to come back as he's done yeah. so often where he just builds up that momentum and breaks guys down. I think that was my call early, but you know, we're wrong about it, but I got the guy right on how he did it. And it was a, a masterclass boxing performance in which when you look at it now, you wonder, how did anybody ever think this was going to be competitive? Yeah, right. Like, it's yeah. incredible. It's crazy, right? Like, uh, he looked so dominant. I mean, geez, he's, he's better than wine, you know? I mean, this guy got better overnight. Uh, it's crazy um, how good he did. Uh, so, yeah, great performance by, by Crawford and certainly solidified his claim of what he believed all those years about how great he was. And I don't think people... You know, I don't, I'm not sure if everybody gave him full credit for what he believed, how good he was. And yeah. dang, he showed it that night for sure. Yeah. And to answer yeah. the other question, um, I can't answer whether I would have activated or not without being inside the camp. I don't know what they're thinking. Like right now, you're 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 saying, well, OK, you know, you've got the rematch clause. It's going to pay you more than any other fight you'll take. Mm -hmm. So why not take it? Uh, as far as whether it's the best move, I don't know without being in the camp. Like, was there something wrong? Did they know that they were going in with an issue? Was the weight a problem? Did they know they did something wrong? I need more facts to know if that's the right move to make. On the surface, from us looking from the outside, You'd have to one and you take you take the money out of it, though. Again, you'd have to say, no, he shouldn't be back in 
with Crawford again. Uh, as a matter of fact, the rematch clause should almost be null and void when you get blasted out. You know, the rematch should be on a hotly contested contest, whether it be Lopez against Lomachenko or, or, or Devin Haney against Lomachenko. Those fights deserve a rematch. Like, it's crazy that we're talking rematch in uh, Dubois and Usyk, uh, Spence and, and Crawford, but the fights that are close, we're not, we don't have a rematch. Insane. It's crazy. <laughs> Let's spin it forward to the next really big fight. We've got Jamel Charlo jumping up two weight classes to take on Canelo Alvarez. And there's certainly plenty of people dismissing Jamel's chances of being able to do that. What do you think about that? I don't know. Like, it defies logic, doesn't it? Like, all of a sudden, you know, you got a guy not fighting somebody in his own weight class. You got David Benavidez that he can fight. David mm-hmm. Benavidez is clamoring for a fight at 168 that, you know, boxing fans want to see it. The best should fight the best. Blah, 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 blah. No, no, wait. I have an idea. Let's <laughs> go after a junior middleweight. <laughs> what? What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the move. We're going to go after a junior middleweight, make him come up two weight classes to fight us. Hey. That's a good idea. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Okay. I don't know. I don't know what to think anymore in this game. It's just crazy. Like, you know, and that's not, I'm not trying to disrespect Charlo in any way. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm just saying that you've got guys in your own division you're supposed to be fighting. If you don't want to fight those guys, then you know, proudly retire, take your legacy into the Hall of Fame. I don't know. I don't know what to think anymore about that stuff. <laughs> the, the politics of boxing never cease to amaze me, brother. All right. I, when I previously thought maybe I would uh, lower your blood pressure with a question, I failed. But, Try so, but again, Eric. But I'm gonna, again. That's right. We're going to end on a note that, that I think is fun, that I, I, I think won't get you too riled up. It has nothing to do with boxing. I, I understand that you have an amateur side passion for magic. And um, I saw uh, David Copperfield's show at MGM Grand like six or seven years ago. And for those 90 minutes or so, I fully believed in magic. Um as a guy who knows some magic, who does some magic, when you watch a trick, can you typically sense how it's done, or do you find yourself as baffled as anyone else most of the time? Well, it depends. I mean, uh, some stuff I know, you know, if it's from the the era of when I studied close-up magic, my expertise is in, or expertise, my, my passion is in close-up magic, not stage magic, not prop magic. It's in close-up magic, just with everyday articles, a, a, a legitimate deck of cards to do something, uh, and I do magic uh, with that. So there are times where I'll, I'll do that, but I'll, I'll give you guys a little story. Okay. Uh, the other day, we were invited to uh, to Sky Sports, and myself, Bomac, McKayla Mayer was there, and Bomac said, He's going to get me. He does magic. And he says, they said, okay, Bomac, will you do the trick? He said, no, no, don't make me do the trick because I'm going to expose Russ. He says, I'll expose him. I said, okay, you know, <laughs> let, let, let's go. So I did the trick. And then again, he said, man, that was fire. He said, that was good. You're going to be that one. He said, I don't know that one. So I did the trick. And then I, I think Michaela Mayer liked it. And, and so did he. So uh, that was fun to do that. And uh, I've been doing that since I'm 15 years old. And I still do it today and i still have a lot of fun doing it and it's uh it's great it's uh it's entertaining and it's fun and it that's that's a good thing that and and 
hanging out in pool halls or snooker clubs is my two great options outside of boxing. And uh, although sometimes I think it's even greater than boxing, but playing pool and, and magic are great things. Next time we'll have you on, we'll just talk snooker and magic, and then we'll all be having a much better time. How about that, buddy? Well, you know what? I'd be, I'll tell you what. Next time we do it, I'll be able to, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to do a magic trick for you. I'll do it over, over, over Skype. I'll do it with you guys holding the deck of cards and following my instructions, and, uh, and I'll do this for you. All okay? right. Sign me up. Yeah. Yeah, I love that idea. That's fantastic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, thank you so much for joining us, Russ. It's always such a pleasure. Thank you for putting some time aside for us. Thank you for us for asking me, Kieran. Uh, thank you for letting me vent a little bit and getting some of my stuff off my chest. And Eric for trying to lower my blood pressure. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just uh, I hope we can make the sport great to what it was again and not be surrounded with these controversies and these drug cheats. We didn't talk about drug cheats, did we? We didn't do that. You know, that's that's another thing. Let's add that to the list of how terrible our sport is and how we deal with that. But uh, maybe we can do that on the on the next one. Yeah, got to save something for the next time. But this is this has been great. Thanks, Russ. Well, thanks, fellas. I appreciate it. Y'all take care. All right. Our thanks again to Russ. Uh, some outstanding rants there. Uh, I love I love how riled up he gets. Uh, apologies for the occasional blippiness during that interview. Russ was battling dodgy hotel internet in Manchester, England. That was the best connection we could get after a couple methods were tried. Uh, third time will be the charm for connectivity with Russ, I'm sure. <laughs> Uh, anyway, he was in Manchester because he was working the corner of Liam Beefy Smith in a rematch of Smith's fourth round TKO of Chris Eubank Jr. So let's talk about the lone semi-major fight from this past weekend. This rematch did not look anything like the first fight. After a scrappy opening couple of rounds with a lot of holding, Eubank found his range and his timing and began teeing off on Smith who was able to offer very little in return. Eubank dropped Smith in the fourth, at which point the Liverpudlian may have rolled his ankle, further hampering him in the ring. Eubank dropped him again in the tenth, and a follow-up barrage along the ropes prompted referee Kevin Parker to wave a halt at 145 of the round. With the win, Eubank, whose career seemed to just about be toast after the January loss, improves to 33-3 and with 24 KOs while Smith falls to 33-4-1 with 20 knockouts. Kieran, what did you see here? What happened to produce such a dramatically different outcome this time? I think, to a large extent, BOMAC happened. Um, I don't think this is a permanent train tra- trainer switch for, for Eubank. Uh, my understanding is that Roy Jones, who had been training Eubank, wasn't available, so BOMAC McIntyre stepped in. But based on what we saw on Saturday night, this might be a partnership that Eubank wants to maintain going yeah. forward. Um, this was classic Bo Mac fighter stuff. The power jab, high but accurate punch output, combinations in the pocket, very good balance. Um, this was <laughs> Crawford Spence too. Um, mm. There's always been a bit of a sense, I think, that Eubank had something like this in his locker. He's clearly an excellent athlete and he has genuine talent, but the whole has always been less than the sum of his parts. And it's been, I think, as I was saying last week, I think by and large, a fairly underwhelming career. But this may well have been the best performance he's ever put together. The, yeah. the time where everything kind of fell into place better than any time before. And, you know, very early on, I made a note that I thought Smith looked altogether too relaxed. And I mean, yeah, look, obviously you want to be relaxed in the ring, but it looked as if he wasn't fully engaged, as if... 
I, it was just that kind of hard to, to put my finger on that he that he just mentally I wasn't sure that he was there and and as the fight went on he was doing such a poor job of throwing anything or even being in a position to that I actually made a note that if I didn't know better I'd say he was shot it looked like the classic case of a fighter looking as if he could probably see openings but not doing anything about them um you know for much of the time Smith's gloves were blocking a lot of Eubank shots he was slipping others but his head was always there in a straight line. And once Eubank really started putting those combinations together, Smith just couldn't get out of the way. Um, he did say afterward that he'd had a rough weight cut. Um, and I, th- I think he may well have injured his ankle when he went down the first time too. But, but that weight cut, if that was rough, that's on him. Right. But also he's 35 now. And when you hit your 30s, it can suddenly be hard to lose that last bit of weight. And the way that he fought certainly does support that that there was just some sluggishness there because smith certainly seemed off but this was really all about chris eubank jr finally putting it all together and not only rescuing his career which like you said was close to being toast but really giving it new life Eric. yeah absolutely um i have to chime in on one detail of this fight one detail that will be pretty much lost to history because it didn't end up changing who won but Boy, oh boy, did the ref make the wrong decision when Smith spit out his mouthpiece after the fourth round knockdown. This is something that all refs and all commissions everywhere need to hear. These guys are getting punched in the head. They're taking shots that could break bones, rattle brains, cause eyes to swell shut, etc. The absolute least of anyone's health concerns is having a slightly dirty mouthpiece shoved back in. It hits the canvas. It's not like it's been dropped into a pig pen and stomped on. Um, You know, maybe it's got a a little residue of something or other on it, but it's perfectly fine. It's clean enough. The ref in that situation, when one guy has a clear advantage over the other, he's just rocked him and scored a clean knockdown. The ref needs to pick up the mouthpiece, shove it right in, thus, you know, buying Liam Smith maybe three to five seconds for having spit it out and get on with the fight. Instead, he bought him like 30 seconds and... Of course, Smith's corner milked it, as they should do when the ref gives them a gift like that. But, you know, if Smith had come back and won this fight after the ref robbed Eubank of this opportunity to follow up while Smith was still hurt, uh, even without that happening, it's just awful. It's inexcusable. It's such an obvious decision there to shove the mouthpiece in and get on with the damn fight. And Eubank should still feel aggrieved despite winning because... You know, maybe he had the chance to answer a KO4 loss with a KO4 <laughs> revenge win, which would have been lovely poetry. Um, and one other note on just the timing of, of the knockout, what it ended up being. I'll also say that I really thought Smith's corner should have stopped it after round nine. Uh, he was he was cooked. He was losing every round. He had nothing to offer. He was outlanded in the fight, ultimately, according to CompuBox, 193 to 33. I can't remember seeing stats that lopsided ever. Uh, I thought it was a mistake to send him out for round 10. Uh, But, you know, while I've been here criticizing the ref, I will say good stoppage by the ref under the circumstances where the corner chose not to do it. I thought he picked the right time to end it. Yeah, and I think I might have mentioned on the podcast that when I went to that refereeing symposium that um, Steve Willis right. hosted at the IBF convention, um, they they talked about the whole mouthpiece thing and from their perspective, and I, and I think, I can't remember, I have to look at my notes, whether he said it's now an ABC um, like mandate or, or recommendation or whether it's just the referees themselves mm. in consultation with doctors that are, are doing this, but the exact same point as you just made was brought up like exactly these guys are getting punched in the head 
so the thing falls on the on the canvas like they'll they'll be fine with it in their mouth for another minute and a half until the corner can wash it off so um i know that that's what referees here in the united states are now being advised to do and i don't know maybe the british board just isn't doing it or this or maybe it's hard for um referees to to kick the habit right um, but yeah but you're right even if they were still going ahead and taking it to the corner to get to get washed i mean you, you got to be prepared for the fact that a corner's gonna do what smith's corner did <laughs> yeah oh my god they couldn't have been moving more slowly yeah. um i mean absolutely like you said it's like holy cow here's a gift let's make the most of that but um uh, something else I wanted to ask you. Uh, so, look, the middleweight division feels like it's there for the taking right now. Um, Eubank said afterwards he wanted to fight Triple G, which he was kind of reluctant to do when he had the chance in 2016 or so when Golovkin was knocking everyone over. Um, I'm not sure that Golovkin is actually an active fighter at this point. I think he might be retired without saying he's retired. But whether he is or not, who would you like to see Eubank fight next? And on the basis of what we saw on Saturday and given the state of the middleweight division, could he actually win a title now at 160? I do really like the Triple G idea. I, I think that if he's an active fighter, uh, that that's probably the perfect fight for both of them right now. Um, Gennady is, is 41. He last fought almost exactly a year ago. If he's retired, great. That's That's probably what I want most for him right now. But if he's not, who better for him to face at 160 pounds if you're looking for someone... He has a fine chance of beating and someone with a name so they can both get paid. Who better than Chris Eubank Jr. fresh off a career best win? And and for Eubank, same deal. Triple G is the biggest possible name he could face. And because Golovkin is now 41 and clearly has slowed down a fair bit, it's a fight that he too would have a, a fine chance of winning. Uh, so I actually do like the idea. Uh, and I think it could happen if Gennady hasn't already made up his mind that he's retired and just hasn't told anybody yet. Um, but in terms of other options for Eubank, I'm sure there will be some consideration given to a rubber match with Smith. Um, I think that could make sense eventually, but maybe not till after Smith gets at least one comeback win under his belt, as this was a total shellacking on Saturday. Otherwise, you look around, this division is loaded with belt holders who, for the most part, are eminently beatable. Uh, it's first of all, it presents a pretty blatant argument against alphabet belts. Uh, not that I not that I need an excuse uh, to make that argument, but uh, look at this division. We're really supposed to think of all of these guys as so-called world champions. Um, but so to answer your question about Eubank, yes, he, he could certainly win a title at 160 because his options include Janabek Alim Kanuli. Vincenzo Galtieri, who the two of them are about to fight each other, uh, which will, I guess, take one option off the table for Eubank. Um, Arislandi Lara, who is 40 years old and hasn't fought in over a year. Jamal Charlo, who hasn't fought in a couple of years. And interim belt holder Carlos Adamas. So a lot of options. I'd make Eubank an underdog against Charlo and an underdog against Adamas. He's live, maybe even favored against the other guys who have belts here. Um and not to be ignored here, he may be improving at age 33. Um, you were talking about it with the with the transition from, from Roy to Bomac. Now, I don't know. Maybe he'll go back to Roy, as you were saying. Uh, I think what, what I saw in the ring was a guy who had picked up some stylistic ideas from Roy and then seems to have benefited from having Bomac refine what he had learned from Roy and, and really put it all together. Eubank certainly has talent. Maybe he's just now starting to put it together. Um, and I, yeah, I, 
if they happen to make a fight between him and Triple G, I would have a really tough time right now picking a winner. So I, I kind of, as long as Triple G isn't retired, I kind of want to see that fight happen. All right. Um, it's quiet in terms of fights taking place. It's quiet in terms of news being made too. But yeah. there is one big fight. Uh, that reportedly is now going to happen, and we've already sort of mentioned it. Uh, the aforementioned Bo Mac McIntyre telling pro boxing fans this week that Errol Spence has told the Crawford camp he intends to activate his rematch clause, although we don't yet know at what weight uh, Crawford will insist that rematch takes place. For As a reminder, when Crawford and Spence agreed to meet in the contract was that the loser had the right to ask for a rematch and the winner had the right to determine what weight that fight that rematch would take place at so eric i'll ask you what we just asked russ should spence be taking that rematch um and an additional question what weight do you think crawford will select 147 or 54 so i agree with russ that you know while we don't have insight directly into the camp to know exactly what was going on in july or, or what could be different next time my view from the outside is that a rematch seems like a mistake. Um, I don't think there was anything fluky about Bud's domination of him. I'm not part of the crowd that feels something was wrong with Errol that night. I think he looked fine for a round and a half, and then he got hit and dropped, and it was after that that his legs weren't quite right. Uh, I don't think he appeared to come into the fight drained or compromised. I would much rather see Spence move up and move on and, and try to start a new run at 154 that doesn't involve facing the best boxer on the planet. Um, and that's in part because, as your other question there alluded to, Crawford gets to choose the weight. If he chooses 147, that would seem less than ideal for Spence. And why would he choose 154 when Spence doesn't have a belt there yet for him to go after? Now, I, I know you and I don't care much uh, about alphabet belt collection, but the fighters often do. Crawford would probably be more interested in fighting Spence at 54 if Spence had acquired a belt there first. As it stands, the only reason for Crawford to say, let's do it at 154, is the desire to make a statement to, to beat Spence on the most Spence-friendly terms. Yeah, Terrence Crawford's the kind of badass who just may do that, but, <laughs> but, but it's not likely, in my opinion. He's never been the type to make big concessions in negotiations before. We know how long it took to make the first Spence fight happen. That'd be a bit of a 180 from Bud, unless it came with some sort of trade-off, like, we'll do it at 154 if I get a 75-25 split of all the money, or, or something like that. So I would guess Crawford will select 147 pounds, and this fight becomes a challenging sell. Uh, we'll see if it actually happens. You know, like, let's say that Crawford says 147. Then the team sit down and they start projecting out the pay-per-view buys and how much money could be in the pot. I think it's possible that someone walks away if they come to the conclusion that they won't be making nearly as much money as last time. But, you know, I could be wrong. They both just got paid very well. So maybe this one isn't about money, especially not for Spence. Um but I, to go back to what you always say, Kieran, and what Russ was touching on as well, immediate rematch clauses are usually more bad than good. And here's even a case where we all agreed going into the first fight that it, if any fight warranted an immediate rematch clause, it was this one. And yet here we still are anyway, not necessarily sure that we want to see an immediate rematch. 
Um, not a whole lot of other news to go over this week. Just a few things. Uh, welterweight contenders Alexis Rocha and Giovanni Santian will meet in the 12-round main event of a Golden Boy card on October 21st from the Forum in Inglewood, California on DAZN. Uh, as noted a few minutes ago, Janabek Alim Canuli and Vincenzo Galtieri will meet to unify a pair of middleweight belts. That'll be October 14th with Keyshawn Davis taking on Nahir Albright in a lightweight co-feature. And an alphabet body has ordered Shakur Stevenson to defend his lightweight belt against Frank Martin, though an alphabet body ordering it doesn't necessarily mean it'll happen. That's it. That's all the notable news this week. Anything you'd like to comment on, Kieran? Well, to follow up on the point that you were making earlier, what the hell happened to the middleweight division? Um, <laughs> yeah. Adam Kennelly against Galtieri for half the available alphabet belts? I mean, wow, how did that even situation even arise? Yeah. I'm... I, I wasn't even paying attention to that. I mean, I guess the middleweight division actually hasn't been great for a while. Um, and certainly probably not since the second Canelo Triple G fight. Um, as you said, is Triple G active or not? He seems disengaged anyway. Um, Canelo's off at 168. Daniel Jacobs is seemingly done as a contender. Sergei Derevianchenko never quite arrived. Yeah, I mean, you talked about about the people who we, who we have there. We've got Carlos Adames sort of waiting in the wings but yeah it it just isn't at the moment a very exciting or talent-laden division and it always kind of hurts more when that's the case with say well with middleweight or welterweight right than if say the cruiserweight division is lacking it's middleweight right one of the original eight is one of the flagship weight classes people should you know the best should be clamoring to fight there but um still it is good to have these two belt holders looking to unify early. Um, the sooner we can rapidly get rid again of these disparate belts and see if there is actually a middleweight to um, to sit at the top of the division, the better. Um, Roca and Santillan, perfectly solid matchup of contenders. Uh, I'm not sure in the in the co-main for that middleweight that Nahir Albright's going to do too much against Keyshawn Davis. Um, Stevenson Martin is an interesting one if that happens. Um, Martin certainly has a lot of skills, as we've talked about, uh, and he definitely feels like he's destined for the top. But my initial feeling is that this might be a bit too early for him. And I know Stevenson's younger than he is, and they have about the same number of fights. But Stevenson's a generational talent, and he's been mixing it at a higher level than Martin. It's a fight I would have loved to see in another year or so. But, you know, Martin is 28. Time waits for no man. And if you are a professional price fighter with any kind of self-belief, you have to take the opportunities when they arise. And he is good enough, Frank Martin, that he could actually give Shakur Stevenson a very, very difficult night. Yeah, I, I, I like the matchup a lot. I think it's one of those things where Stevenson's a big favorite against anyone, pretty much. Yep. And Frank Martin included in that. But, you know, Frank Martin's is yeah about, about as tough of a non-super fight challenge as you could possibly uh, give Shakur Stevenson right now. All right. It's time for uh, the savior for podcast listeners when we have a slow boxing week. No matter how little is going on in the sport, there's always the fight game. Uh, and you started a trend last week, Kieran. You used a listener-submitted set of clues, then suggested other listeners can send stuff in. And I got a much-welcomed DM from longtime listener Will Alston from Texas, I do believe. Uh, he goes back to uh, the Ring Theory days. Uh, he sent me a fight and some clues. I've made a few tweaks, but it's like 97% what Will sent in. So are you ready for Will Alston's edition of the fight game? Ready as I will ever be, sir. Okay. Clue number one. 
in this fight, an undefeated 21-year-old title holder retained his belt by decision versus a 28-year-old future Hall of Famer. I strongly considered adding one descriptive word that Will did not include. Uh, and I was like, because, you know, this clue doesn't give you a whole lot. Should I give him a little bit more, a tiny bit more? And then I was a little afraid I'd be giving you too much. So I didn't do it. This is Will's exact uh, opening clue. I considered giving you a little more information, but I did not. This is all you get for the opening clue. Undefeated 21-year-old title holder retained the belt by decision against a 28-year-old future Hall of Famer. Uh, I don't know why, but off the top of my head, I think, no, I was going to say um, Eric Morales because he was a title holder very young, but I'm trying to think he wasn't really outpointing people when he was 21. He was mostly he was mostly stopping them, and I'm not sure that he fought a Hall of Famer who was seven years older than him, so... Unless Marco Antonio Barrera is seven years older than him, and we've done that fight anyway, right, um, so it's not Eric. Mor- it's not Eric Morales. It is not. I will. Uh, I will tell you that any for- any guess involving Eric Morales would be an incorrect guess. Okay, so I get a half point for saying it is not Eric. Morales. <laughs> I don't um, think you get any points for that. Beyond that, nope. Gonna need a second clue. Okay, clue two. Uh, And I'll preface this with my own note that I don't know whether this clue will prove helpful at all, but it's a really interesting stat that Will came up with here at the very least. So here it is. Subsequently, the loser of this fight went 3-0 against a particular pair of future Hall of Famers, while the winner of this fight went 0-3 all by stoppage against the same two future Hall of Famers. Oh, that's an interesting clue. It really is. It's a really interesting clue that I don't know if it actually will help you. It's completely helpful, but it's a really interesting clue. (laughs) It really is. It'll be one where once you've solved this and have the answer, you'll go back and say, wow, that's pretty fascinating. 3-0 against a pair of Hall of Famers. Right. And and um, that pair is unconnected other than that they're a Hall of Famers who just happen to be mutual opponents. Correct. They're not twins or anything. uh, That is correct. They are not twins. They They just are two other fighters of the same era who ended up in the Hall of Fame. And the loser of this fight went 3-0 against them. The winner of this fight went 0-3 all by stoppage against the same two guys. Nope, not even close. Okay. <laughs> All right. I mean, I love the question. Yes. But yeah, no, I, uh, yeah. To be fair, I was, I was nowhere close yet either as I was reading through the clues initially. So, all right. Now, this next one, I have tweaked the wording a bit because Will in the clue mentioned the three belt era, but it was to some already the four belt era. Although, as we know, to me, every era is the one belt era. Um, <laughs> so anyway, here's the reworded clue. This is not quite how Will had it. This is how I want it. The losing fighter had, to this point, only held a WBO belt. However, he'd win a more widely recognized title three fights later and go on to unify and win the ring belt. Which again, got got some more information here. May not move you any closer. It wouldn't have moved me any closer. <laughs> Will, Will, Will has some tough clues here that are full of interesting information that aren't quite giving away who you should be thinking about. And you know how sometimes we talk about how you could sometimes get stuck when mm-hmm. you 
a certain thought, like I am, like I'm thinking of people in that weight class. Right. Okay. I will, I will add a half clue, which is don't be thinking about Morales Barrera size fighters. Okay. But this clue does give you, especially with my clarification, gives you a little sense of the time frame. WBO belts were around. Um, Will seemed to be calling it a three belt era, but it was sort of the four belt era. So it gives gives you a a sense. Late nineties, early two thousands. I'm gonna go. Yeah, you're in the you're in the general correct range. Yes. So the winner had only held a WBO, or the loser had only it was, held it. it was the loser had only held a WBO belt before this, obviously did not succeed in getting any belts in this fight, uh, but he would go on to win a more widely recognized title three fights later and go on to unify and win the ring belt. So it's anyone who got outpointed first. So it's, I'm thinking it's... This is, this is the, the 28-year-old who... Right. 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 So I can't. So it can't be a. Uh, it's not a heavyweight. It is not uh, a heavyweight. It is somewhere not. between Morales Barrera, 122 pounds, and heavyweight. <laughs> it is somewhere in between those two uh, extremes. Um, gosh, who would have first held a BO belt before unifying? Oof. I'm struggling with this. Okay. All right. All right. Let's let's move on to the to the fourth clue. If you and uh, well, you know, give me your blessing to no, move no, on. Let's, okay. let's absolutely move on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. And for the fourth clue, Will did not include the weight class. I am doing you the favor of adding the weight class Thanks. because I feel I feel I feel it's useful at this point. We're up to clue four. Let's let's give more information. Right. So here right. is the clue that I have tweaked to include the weight class. Okay. The winner of this 154 pound fight ended up with a career record of 26 and 5 while the loser ended up with a career record of 51 6 and 1 so it was a 21 year old 154 pound champ titleist whatever winning a decision over a 28 year old who would go on to the hall of fame and much success while the 21 year old who won this fight would would uh, end up losing three times to future Hall of Famers, yada yada. Uh, can I hear that clue one more time? Yes, yes. Sorry. The winner of this 154 pound fight ended up with a career record of 26 and five, while the loser ended up with a career record of 51, six and one. Is one of them Winky? One of them is. So I'm going to to try and remember. So Winky, <laughs> Winky was the <laughs> loser, right? Yes, you're correct. He was the loser. He was outpointed by a 21. Who was he outpointed? What the fuck? Outpointed. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, had, you know what? Had I thrown in the word that I was tempted to throw in to clue one, I'm going to throw it in now. All right. Okay. I was I was going to say the clue one was in this fight an undefeated twenty one year old title holder retained his belt by decision versus a twenty eight year old future Hall of Famer that was the clue as Will wrote it I was going to say in this fight an undefeated twenty one year old title holder retained his belt by disputed decision versus a twenty eight year old future Hall of Famer was that Harry Simon No you are close though you are it was 
probably Winky's next significant fight after he lost a close decision to Harry Simon. That's a that's a good guess. Harry Simon was pretty young. Uh, Beat Bronco McCart, right? It wasn't Bronco McCart. It was yeah. not. Think so. So here's here's what you have here. So it is Winky Wright is the 28 year old future Hall of Famer, and so he was against a 21 year old title holder. And remember that Winky went three and zero against a particular pair of future Hall of Famers, while the person that he fought in this fight went zero and three all by stoppage against the same two future Hall of Famers. So maybe that will help you. Shane Mosley's in that list of Shane, yes. Winky. Winky yes. B and yep. what other future Hall of Famer did Winky go on to uh, to beat? He beat Mosley twice. Yes, Mosley twice and Trinidad once. That makes three and zero. Who went zero and three all by stoppage against that pair? Mark. Well, I was. Jesus Christ. Wait, I think I... you started to say it. Really? Is it Fernando Vargas? Yep. It is Fernando is it? Vargas. Uh-huh. <laughs> why, why was that a puzzle? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, I don't know why I was struggling on that particular fight. But yeah, there you go. All right. Yeah, see, I, was, yeah I had it all along. <laughs> Clearly. I, I do wonder how much it would have changed any of your thinking if I had said disputed decision right off the bat. Maybe it wouldn't have uh, really helped you at all. But, not, actually. Um, but, but yeah, yeah. That, so, see, now that is coming back to me really quite clearly, actually, because, right. yeah, it was quite a disputed decision. So, yeah, for the record, I personally don't disagree with the decision. I thought that Vargas hustled enough down the stretch to eke it out. There was a 116-112 scorecard that was pretty outrageous, but the others were one one judge had it even 114-114, one had it 115-113. I thought they were both fine. I didn't feel that Winky was robbed in any way in this fight i just thought it was a good close fight and and in retrospect given how great winky wright turned out to be this should actually maybe go down as a career highlight for fernando vargas that yeah. at the time it looked like a, a bit of a blemish that he needed a, a debatable decision to get the win in a fight that he was favored to win at the time um let me i'll, I'll read uh I'll read Will's uh, fifth clue here. Uh, Many felt the crafty veteran outpointed his ferocious opponent. And to those (laughs) folks who felt that way, the judges did not get it right. Oh, very good. Yeah. I got to say, so far, our listeners are doing a great job with those fifth clues. Yes. Yes. They they get the idea where (laughs) if we're not getting it in four, you better make damn sure we're going to get it in five. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, So, yeah, the exact date was December 4th, 1999 in Lincoln City, Oregon, Vargas by majority decision over Winky Wright. Yeah, I had almost forgotten about that fight, honestly, because it was, yeah. It's one of those fights where when you think about what the fight is, you look back, and I think you alluded to this, you look back on the clues and you're like, those are good clues. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is It is fascinating that Winky Wright, after losing officially to Vargas, went 3-0 and against Mosley and Trinidad, and Vargas got knocked out twice by Mosley and once by Trinidad. Yeah. Oh, that's actually good. Well done, Will. I like that. Yes. That was fun. All right. Keep all them right. coming, listeners. Yes, please do. Please <laughs> do. Um, all right. To conclude, let's go to this week's top five challenge. Uh, Last week, you tasked me with listing the five best pros who were Olympic gold medalists uh, after uh, 1988 or later, um, with the proviso that I didn't have to worry about people who'd won gold medals in 2020. Um, (laughs) um, This was a fun one, but quite a difficult one, because 
there weren't too many to choose from. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought that six kind of separated themselves a little bit. Uh, and I also thought putting them in any order was tough because mm-hmm. all of the top five or six have excelled as professionals and all are already Hall of Famers or will be without controversy. So putting them in an order was was tricky. Um, and I don't know that I disagree if you had them in any other kind of order and i strongly suspect that your top six is my same top six if not necessarily the same order right um i will start with noting that as i kind of hinted there is a strong 5a which uh, <laughs> i feel i should mention because it's not doesn't deserve to just be in the honorable mentions my 5a was alexander Usyk, hmm. and he could very well end up higher honestly if he beats tyson fury he leaps the number one. Um, right. he, he may well climb the charts anyway. I think he suffers a little bit because it is harder to fully assess the career of someone whose career is still ongoing. Um, I put him 5A. If you have him pretty much anywhere else in the top five, I am not wouldn't have a problem with it. But that's, that's where I went. Judging by the mm, I think you probably got him in your top five. So... But, as- um, yeah, I have him as my number five, although I don't know if I was just trying really hard to make the guy I was spinning the assignment off of be number five, because I also have a 5A who may turn out to be your number five, and they are pretty much a coin flip. Okay. Well, my number five is a countryman of E6. Mm-hmm. Helps. Yes. And, okay. <laughs> that's that's I mean, my that's my top honorable mention, so we just flocked him. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, Vladimir Klitschko. I've oh. Number five. Oh, oh, all right. <laughs> all right. I just, <laughs> well, all right. There's another one in here as well. Right, right. Okay. Um, uh, and look, I know Vladimir wasn't the most popular always or exciting of champions, but the dude held some kind of heavyweight belt for the best part of a decade during his second run. And that's some achievement. Um, his last Diamond Brewster left him at 42 and three and seemingly going nowhere, but then he rattled off 22 wins before losing his last two. And I don't know how kind history will be to Vladimir's heavyweight reign, but he was a worthy champion and an excellent professional and somebody who was at the top of the top division in the sport for a long time. So I've got him at number five. So I, I've been reminded of the important lesson of not to assume uh, because uh, I thought you were about to say a different name and I was uh, I was coming um, and then uh, right. Uh, so I actually had Vlad up at number three and it's I may be a surprise that I do because I am among the all time uh, biggest critics of, of, of Vlad. I certainly felt he and his brother both combined to make heavyweight boxing a lot less fun for a long period and hurt the popularity of it. But just in terms of sort of the the longevity and the numbers he compiled and all that, I had him ranked a little higher. But I agree with your initial thesis statement here that you can kind of put these guys in just about any order. And especially I sort of the, for me at least, the three, four, five, six are pretty easy to mix and match around. But I had him a little higher than you did. Okay. Number four, I had what I assume is your honorable mention, Vasily Lomachenko. Yes. Um, I really struggled to figure out where to place Vasily. And I think partly, again, that's that same thing that we haven't had a separation on his career. It's still ongoing. Um, I I could almost see a case for putting him as high as number two, but I put him fourth. He may well be the naturally most naturally talented and supremely skilled person on this list. You know, fought for a belt in his second pro bout, won one in his 
third. I went through a phase of being so dominant. He made four opponents in a row quit. Um, showed absolutely mesmerizing skills. Um, had a total of three or four rounds gone in his direction instead of the other guys. Mm. He might be top, but they didn't. And those narrow defeats to Lopez and Haney, even if the Haney one was very controversial, as we just discussed with Russ, makes a slight difference in where he goes. So uh, I've got him at number four. This is quite the list of all-time Ukrainian greats that we've compiled. That was the assi- that was the assignment, right? Uh, yeah, he was my my top honorable mention, but uh, but yeah, he's he's a tricky one to peg where he belongs, and uh, like Gusik, he's not he's not done yet, so all subject to change. All right, my number three. Again, you could make a case for him being number two or even higher, and it's Andre Ward. Um, what can you, your ums or uh, just <laughs> I wouldn't read anything. Mark. I wouldn't read much into that. Mm. <laughs> um, not much to criticize about the career of a man who won Olympic gold and then went unbeaten as a professional. Um, big wins over the likes of Karl Froch and Sergei Kovalev. Uh, titles at 68, 75. Always carried himself with class as well. Uh, had he had another three or four fights instead of sitting out his contract with Dan Goosen for the best part of two years. He might have been even higher, but um, and if you do have him higher than me, no complaints at all. But number three for me is Andre Ward. I have him lower than you. I have him at number. He was my number four. Um, and okay. yeah, he's a, it's you know arguably the pound for pound best fighter on this list. Although you could also say that about a couple of other guys, but somewhat limited pro career in terms of number of fights and years and great opponents faced and all that. So I actually, I struggled with him versus Vlad because they had such different great careers. Um, But I ended up Ward four, Vlad three, and we clearly have the same top two, but it remains to be seen if we have them in the same order. Indeed. So number two is a man who defeated every man he faced in the ring as a professional, even if he needed two attempts do it with a couple of pros a couple of his opponents and that's lennox lewis um the lineal and undisputed heavyweight champion uh, beat the likes of holyfield and tyson and vitali klitschko and david tour and tommy morrison dispatched andrew galotta in one round michael grant and franz bota in two the best heavyweight champion of his era one of the best dozen at least of all time lennox lewis my number two he is also my number two, so that means we certainly have the same number one. And yeah, I sort of went through some of the the same thoughts in terms of trying to figure out where these guys uh, where these guys land, and the fact that uh, you mentioned the positive spin is Lennox faced every man he ever or Lennox defeated every man he ever faced. The negative spin on that is he had two pretty bad KO losses in or around his prime, which uh, you cannot say about uh, the guy that we clearly both have number one. Indeed. Uh, and that number one is Oscar De Loya. Um, deservedly has taken a lot of shit in recent years for a lot of things. <laughs> Let's not ever forget how important he was to the sport at his yeah. peak. The dude carried the sport on his back for several years. He was lineal champion at three weights. He fought pretty much everybody that there was to fight. And yeah, okay. He lost to Mosley twice. And he lost to Mayweather and Pacquiao. He blew it against Trinidad, but he gave Mayweather one of his toughest fights. Probably still deserved the win against Trinidad. Was close in the second fight with Mosley. And if you're always going to fight the, the toughest opponents, you're going to lose some fights. The tragedy is that with greater discipline and with an approach to his health and training that was more reminiscent of, say, Floyd Mayweather, right. he could have been even better. Yeah, uh, And that's scary to imagine how good he could have been because he was very, very good. And he's my number one. 
Yep. Same here. It, in the end, I didn't even struggle that much to separate yep. him from Lennox and make him the number one. Just, you know, in a pound for pound sense, uh, clearly superior, better career, more big fights even than Lennox Lewis. Uh, just so many huge fights, as you said, fought everyone and uh, I think is the number one Olympic gold medalist since 1988. All righty. Another wildly different <laughs> they kind of were they kind of were we one and two were the same but we didn't have anyone else in the exact same spot after that but we did have the same four people we just had yeah i think and anthony joshua and guillermo rigandao and yuri yorkis gambo are kind of like in the next tier i think but we're yeah. that close I had so I had a couple other names in that next tier that i don't know that i i put yuri yorkis so i ended up with so for me, Lomachenko, my honorable mention number one, was on a tier of his own, basically in the in the mm-hmm. top six tier, whatever. Mm-hmm. I had a I had two tiers from there. I had Gamboa in the lower tier, and in the higher tier, I had Rigando and Joshua, who you mentioned, but I also had Kennedy McKinney and Joel Casamayor in that mm-hmm. sort of in that first tier. Whereas Gamboa, I had him in a tier with uh, Vasily Girov, Ray Mercer, Alexander Povetkin, those kind of guys. Yeah, that's all pretty fine. Yeah, but that was interesting that they, we had, yeah, six very clearly elevated themselves. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, raise another one who, you know, with a bit of, bit of discipline here and there, could have actually been even higher. What a tough out he was. But um, yeah, there you go. That was fun. I actually really, really liked that challenge. So thank you for that. Oh, my um, pleasure. Well done. That will do it. For this week's edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney, it is another quiet week next week, but we will have a showbox to preview as the sport begins to ramp up for the fall. Uh, So please join us then. And until then, thank you so much for listening. Be safe, be kind. Bye.